Welcome to episode 65 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part three of our series discussing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and today we will be talking about how fat burning and low carb diets contribute to fatty liver. And throughout the series, we've been beginning by explaining some of the general mechanisms and physiology underlying fatty liver, and this is a really important uh, disease process to understand because it pretty much directly applies to almost any other chronic health issue or symptom. Uh, So because of that, we have been diving in. We've been taking some time to go through the different mechanisms and we are including graphics. So you may want to watch this one on YouTube uh, if you want to take a look at those graphics, but we'll also make sure to describe them verbally. And then toward the end of the series, we'll be digging into the more practical application for the concepts that that we're discussing including what this means as far as diet and lifestyle and supplements in order to reverse the situation of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this series has been a slightly different style of podcast compared to what we normally do here on the show, uh, where we have been digging in a little bit deeper into the mechanism. So uh, you'll have to let me know in the comments whether you guys like that or would prefer a little bit more of a surface level uh, format. In today's episode in particular, We'll be discussing why low-carb diets are not a good solution for fatty liver. We'll be talking about how fat burning and lipolysis, or the release of fat, actually contribute to fatty liver. We'll be talking about why ketone production is a sign of stress and inhibited mitochondrial respiration. We'll be talking about the role of uncoupling in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and why aiming to increase uncoupling is a misguided approach. And then we'll be talking about why a low-fat diet also doesn't directly address the root cause of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are struggling with fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or any other symptoms or conditions that we discussed throughout the series, whether that's insulin resistance or related conditions like heart disease or diabetes, or if you're dealing with any other low energy symptoms, maybe that's chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, uh, joint pain, brain fog, intestinal symptoms, gut issues, uh, weight gain, poor sleep, insomnia, or any hormonal imbalances, reproductive issues, low libido, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. All right, so we've talked through basically these mechanisms as far as how mitochondrial respiration, or I should say inhibited mitochondrial respiration, is underlying the fat production in fatty liver. And this next study discusses that further, but then also talks about some of the mechanisms that might be causing that, which I think are potentially counterintuitive and are definitely helpful to go through. So I'm going to read this quote and then I'll pull up the graphic from that study and we'll talk through it. So they mentioned that. Approximately one-third of the U.S. population has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a condition closely associated with insulin resistance and increased risk of liver injury. Dysregulated mitochondrial metabolism is central in these disorders. Individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease had 50% higher rates of lipolysis, that's fat release, and 30% higher rates of gluconeogenesis. There was a positive correlation between intrahepatic triglyceride content and both mitochondrial oxidative and anaplerotic fluxes. These data indicate that mitochondrial oxidative metabolism is around twofold greater in those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, providing a potential link between intrahepatic triglyceride content, oxidative stress, and liver damage. 
So that's a lot there. We'll talk through it on the graphic. <laughs> no hablo espanol, Jay. <laughs> but the i mean just to kind of summarize again what they're what they're mentioning is that basically you've got a lot of flux going on you've got these metabolic issues that are leading to very high rates of things like lipolysis and gluconeogenesis which are stress pathways and we'll talk about that in more detail in a bit uh, but then they also talk about high rates of mitochondrial oxidative oxidative and anaplerotic fluxes and we'll talk about that in a second too but what they're saying is that there is a high rate of oxidation going on which we talk about high metabolism so somebody reading that might think that's a good thing but in this case they talk about why that is and why in this case it's not actually efficient mitochondria oxidation instead it's very inefficient and that's basically the major problem uh do you want to add anything before i pull the graphic up uh no you can go ahead just for anybody out there gluconeogenesis is the liver producing glucose uh, like literally making glucose from what it has available. And then mm -hmm. lip lipolysis is the release or breakdown of fatty acids from your fat tissue. And then they basically will push it into the bloodstream. And then as far as your anaplerotic fluxes, the Spanish part of that, that statement there um, <laughs> is just like a buildup of intermediates in the pathway. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and to just to add as well with lipolysis, you can have it from the body fat stores, but you can also have it in terms of the release of LDL or VLDL from the liver. So that's basically when you have these excess triglycerides in the liver that are, that are leaving. And so what it's kind of saying is that you have high amounts of these backup pathways, um, yep. which we already talked about that. These are the pathways that come about when glucose is not stored or the fructose is not stored as glycogen. It's not oxidized, uh, to energy, then it becomes fat, it becomes released as, well, the gluconeogenesis itself is not a problem if you're just converting some fructose to glucose, but when it's under stress, it's a problem. Well, yeah, this case is like the, you have a buildup of intermediates in, in the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle is what we use to produce energy. And so the intermediates build up and the cell is kind of like, well, we need to get rid of them. So let's turn them back to glucose. That's kind of what's going on. And then it's like, oh, we can also turn it into fat. And so that's what you're seeing. It's like moving. It's like you have all these the these things like oh we're gonna put into storage because we can't use it right now exactly yeah uh and kind of export it out like get it out of here there's there's you know we've got too much yeah. essentially because we can't use it well so let's pull up this graph which basically shows that so what we have here is a few different things to point out basically they they aren't showing here the the fructose or glucose entering in instead they're focusing more on the fat side of things because they note how there's a, mu a much greater increase in fat oxidation in the situation of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So what we see over here on the right, we see the adipose tissue and they're showing increased lipolysis, which is basically that that fat tissue is getting uh, released as free fatty acids, um, which are then entering the blood and are then picked up by the liver. And this is key because, and I know we talked about this a little bit as far as fat from the diet can enter the liver as, as a fuel, but normally people are not considering the fat from our fat stores being released and then entering the liver. And we'll talk about this in more detail and how this is associated with high stress hormones. And it's something that can happen regardless of, of what you're eating. Essentially, it's just not coming directly from the diet um, and instead is, instead is a sign of systemic stress. So we, we have these free fatty acids that are taken up and then those are entering into, I mean, they're doing one of a couple things, but the first thing that they would do would be to enter into the mitochondria and enter into beta oxidation and then enter uh, into the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, uh, which is, so we've got the beta oxidation here and the tricarboxylic acid cycle, which is the Krebs cycle. And we've talked about this, you know, before where we've got this buildup here because of various reasons that we'll discuss, which one of which is just excess fat oxidation, which increases the amount of flux through complex two. And this is due to that increased FADH2 to NADH ratio that we talked about a bit. And that increases reactive oxygen species. Uh, and it also slows down the production of ATP and leads to a, a slowing down of the citric acid cycle, which is what leads to what they're describing as anaplerosis. And so as Mike mentioned, this is a buildup of intermediates in this cycle because it's not flowing through. So you, you basically at every step that things are being blocked, you end up with a buildup of that intermediate. Uh, one of those main intermediates, which we've talked about a lot, is acetyl-CoA, which then can leave the mitochondria and be converted to melanyl-CoA and then converted as fat. 
um, or it can be converted to ketones that they mentioned here, which the ketones can then be exported. And I think it's really great that they highlight this because this is something that is known to be seen in something like diabetes or a condition like diabetes, where, which is a condition that's highlighted or, or just directly illustrated by impaired, uh, impaired mitochondrial respiration. And when that happens, that's the process that leads to ketone production. It leads to ketogenesis, which also tends to be driven by stress hormones. And so it's, it's kind of an aside from this topic directly, but it's, I think it's uh, so paramount to highlight that ketogenesis is not something that occurs during healthy, free-flowing respiration and energy production and health. Instead, it, it's something that occurs under major stress when you have a huge buildup of something like acetyl-CoA because the citric acid cycle is blocked and the, and the uh, electron transport chain is blocked and you're in this low energy state, that's when you start producing ketones. And this is going to happen as well when you're you know starving or not eating carbs, which is essentially starving, mimics starvation. It shows the exact same effect. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight that. And I like that they mentioned that. And then they also mentioned that the other aspects of anaplerosis could involve uh, elevated pyruvate or precursors to pyruvate. And these can then be uh, used to increase gluconeogenesis um, or other, basically they mentioned gluconeogenic substrates that this is just all spillover as, as Mike mentioned, this is all just spillover when these things are not being used properly. And then when that does happen, as we mentioned before, the free fatty acids will then be re-esterified into stored triglycerides or released through VLDL and then potentially going back to the adipose tissue. Um, and again, the same thing would happen with any substrate that's coming into the liver at this point, whether it's fructose or glucose or free fatty acids. Yeah, because you have essentially a breakdown of energy at the at the cell. So no matter what you're putting into the system, because the energy is not flowing appropriately, it has to be moved into all these backup systems. And then we could talk later on, which I'm like itching to get to, is kind of like what what makes this situation worse, and what's what's like what are some of the root causes under it. I mean, the primary root cause is is going to be your um, your energy failure. But like what's causing the energy failure or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know we're spending a lot of time digging through the mechanisms of what actually happens during that energy failure. So hopefully everyone's just on the edge of their seat waiting to hear what causes it. <laughs> but I think it's really helpful to just illustrate these things, clear, clear it up or really take the time to build it out step by step. Because that's, as I mentioned, with something like ketones, like if you don't have this picture of what's going on, then it's really hard to understand why ketone production is a problem, you know? Someone tells you that ketones are great for brain health or uh, are just the best fuel. And how would you know any different or how would you have any concept of what actually is involved in producing ketones? Um, you know, and the same could be true as far as somebody saying that fructose causes fatty liver. It's the same idea. So I think that that's why it's so helpful to, to really take the time to break these things down step by step. And that brings us to the next piece that I want to highlight about this study, which is that they mentioned that because of all these processes going on, you they see elevated mitochondrial oxidative metabolism. Like you see, and, and we show that it's not necessarily running efficiently, but you see higher rates of it. And normally there's a couple of hypotheses, or there's two main hypotheses as far as what's causing that. Um, again, like what kind of mechanism is underlying it. It's st we're still not talking about like causes as far as what are you eating or what's in your environment, but rather like what is the more immediate kind of underlying cause. And the first one that they mention is impaired mitochondrial capacity due to increased, lipat increased lipid metabolites, which cause insulin resistance. So what they're saying here is, and both of these two main hypotheses are central, centralized around excess lipids. So they say, they're basically saying that you have all these excess lipids, these excess fatty components that are blocking the ability for the mitochondria to work properly and oxidize glucose or even oxidize fats to an extent. And this causes insulin resistance through that Randall effect, the Randall cycle. And that is why you see uh, increased metabolism because it's it's being blocked by these lipid metabolites. The second hypothesis that they mention, or hypothesis that they mention is that you have this lipid overload, you end up with so much of these fats coming in that this forces a lot of fat oxidation because you just have all the substrate and this then causes oxidative stress and it causes damage and inflammation and eventually you end up with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And those things are both, I think, helpful. I think it's helpful to acknowledge those hypotheses as far as pieces of the mechanism. But they then point out a third hypothesis, which is their own, 
which I think gets a little bit deeper. It, it basically gets at what leads to the excess lipids that are that are seen there. And the reason why it's so important is because you hear, the, hear this often, maybe in like, to, you know, classic low fat circles, whether it's like vegan, vegetarian, or just a conventional medical view. When they're talking about fat being a problem, they talk about how fat will, uh, fat is basically the cause of fatty liver disease and fat is the cause of heart disease and fat is the cause of diabetes because in these situations you see these excess lipid excessive amounts of lipid metabolites that are blo- that we know block glucose oxidation we know they block insulin signaling so they just blame it straight on the fatty acids or the fats that we're getting in our diets and what they're not doing is questioning what is leading to like the assumption is just that if you eat more fat that's going to cause this you know, all of these lipids that are just blocking up the cell because the cells aren't meant to have fat. So, of course, it's just going to be blocked and it's not going to work right. And instead, these these researchers talk about their own hypothesis, which I think gets more at what's going on. And so they mention basically that it comes down to an increased energy demand. That is like the main reason why you're seeing increased respiration. And when they say increased energy demand, they're basically talking about not having enough ATP. They're saying that there's a lack of ATP and that drives it. So here's a couple of quotes that they mentioned. The first one is that they say, in as much as mitochondrial TCA cycle activity is closely governed by energy demand, we interpret this finding to indicate increased energy demand during non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So that's that first piece, in which they're basically saying they know that the Krebs cycle activity is closely governed by the amount of energy available, and that must mean that there's more energy needs in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then they explain why that might why that might be from their hypothesis, and they say that mitochondria may simply be less efficient during non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a possibility supported by mitochondrial damage and uncoupling in the liver of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis patients. So I just want to break that down real quick before I go on, where they're saying that you see increased mitochondrial damage and increased uncoupling in patients with fatty liver. And the mitochondrial damage, we've talked about increased oxidative stress and all of that. But they also talk about uncoupling. And again, this is one of those areas where it's so helpful to be breaking down these mechanisms because people talk so positively about uncoupling all the time. And uh, are you good? I'm just laughing because it's, yeah, it's like as soon as you hear like the buzzword, whether it's uncoupling or whether it's increased oxidation, it's like, oh, it must be good. And it's a question always like, why? And it's again, it's just like the uncoupling is like a protective mechanism. And I guess you could either see it from one of the three hypotheses hypotheses as a disposal mechanism of the excess fatty acids, because basically the the electron transport chain isn't working very well um, or doesn't have enough of the carriers and you have an excess amounts of fatty acids or on the other side, which kind of works in the same way idea of what we're talking about even in this first that first one the first hypothesis i just mentioned is that you basically have the um the the electron transport chain or the mitochondria is damaged and so it can't produce energy adequately so it's going to upregulate up uncoupling and there's but they're showing uncoupling as like an example of like uh uh or like a sign indicating the mitochondrial damage but the and to prove their hypothesis that the original point is that the the mitochondria is damaged, less efficient, and so you have an increased energy demand, but you're unable to meet it, and that's what's the primary mechanism behind NAFLD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and just to some people might not be aware of what uncoupling is, and I think we mentioned it a little bit in one of the previous uh, when we were going through one of the previous graphics. But basically, we've been talking about and um, you I guess you can kind of see it in this. Here's just a, I'll, I'll pull up one of the previous graphs just so there's some sort of image with, with what we're talking about. So this is one of those kind of complex ones, but on the left here, number three, you see the, the Krebs cycle. And then over here at number seven is where you see the electron transport chain. And so these are two separate uh, pieces of energy production. And you can actually see it a little better in this, in this graph, which is a little simpler as well. Okay. So you see right here in the center, the, uh, the Krebs cycle, and they're focusing specifically on the production of NADH here, mm-hmm. but you also have the production of FADH2, and that's mostly, you're going to get some of that in the Krebs cycle and some of it in, in, the, uh, in beta oxidation. But then those, those electron 
carriers then head over to the electron transport chain right here. They drop those electrons off. And then you see this function along the uh, along the electron transport chain, which isn't shown directly here, but but you basically have this kind of passing along, and then you end up producing ATP from it. And what you have in uncoupling is basically that you have this drop off of electrons here, but you don't have you basically increase the permeability right here. So, and this you see these protons coming through at every point. And so those help to create a gradient that allows for ATP to be produced here at complex four. And so basically what you have in uncoupling is a is like a release valve that turns that stops any ATP production and just allows for you to fully release the the gradient that's the proton gradient and you just start dropping off all the electrons and everything gets released basically as heat. So you're not producing energy anymore, you're just releasing heat and burning through a lot of substrate. And people say that this is good because this is the best way to burn through all your fat is you just need to uncouple and not produce any energy and just burn it all as heat and you're good to go. And, you know, there's these studies where they use uncoupling agents like um, DMP, dinitrophenol. Exactly. So compounds like DMP that directly cause this uncoupling and you see a ton of weight loss and all these other, uh, well, mostly it's centered on weight loss and I'm sure you would see a reduction in fatty liver and I'm sure you'd see a reduction in diabetes similar to metformin, just because you're just causing all this substrate to be burned up. And there can be some value to that if you have just a ton of substrate laying around, but it's it's so far beside the point. Uh, and you're not getting any energy from it. And that's part of the whole problem in the first place. So so you have an energy failure with the, un, with the uncoupling because you're not producing ATP, which is your main energy source. So right. you're basically just taking... It's like if you put a whole bunch of gas in your car and you just turn the heat up really, really high inside the car to burn all your gas, but you yeah. didn't, you didn't like drive anywhere. And that's kind of what's going on with the cell. You're just, you're just, because you have so much, you have basically what's happening in the cell is the engine's broken, but you still have all this gas coming in. So mm -hmm. the cell needs to do something with that gas. So it doesn't completely flood the broken engine. So you the you just turn the heat up inside the cell. That's that's what uncoupling is doing. And but you're still not solving the problem of the energetic failure. So you're still not producing ATP. And then one thing that was on that graph that they showed is that when the ATP decreases to I guess to a certain threshold, that's when you see mitophagy, which is literally the destruction of the mitochondria. As soon mm -hmm. as you see destruction of the mitochondria, then you will start to see destruction of the cell. It, if it releases cytochrome C. I'm pretty sure, which is one of the enzymes in the electron transport chain. I'm pretty sure that's like the cardinal signal for cellular apoptosis. And mm -hmm. so in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you basically have this state where you have too much substrate and your body's trying to adapt. And then when you go to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, which is basically like inflammation, then you start to see the cells actually are like dying. And then you go to, after that, you go to hepatic cirrhosis, which is the fibrosis or the liver is becoming fibrotic. The, the, like the, the once functional liver cells that died are now becoming fibrotic collagen and then eventually cancer. So it's like, that's the progression. And it's just, that's what happens with energy failure. And by the way, that happens with every other tissue in the body. That's literally the progression you see, even in heart disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to, to adjust the analogy a little bit with the car, because I think we, we've got a good option. Uh, we've got a good one here. <laughs> so it's like you have this problem where the engine's working really inefficiently. So you're trying to go, you're trying to get from A to B and you're really not going very far and the engine's not using the fuel very well. So you keep pouring in more and more fuel and the fuel is overflowing and you're like, we've got this huge problem here. And so to burn off all the fuel, you just throw it into neutral and rev the engine really fast. And so you're not actually going anywhere. You're still not getting to B. You're just getting rid of all the fuel. Um, you're still not actually moving forward. You're still not actually producing energy. You've just completely uncoupled the the revving of the engine or like the the using of the, the usage of the substrate from the buy, from the end product from the energy or if you're running you know if you're using car from the power to turn the wheels and, and make the car move and so you so and so you see this as you mentioned you see this in these degenerative states with a lot of oxidative stress and a lot of reactive oxygen species because what happens is when you're not producing energy efficiently. You've got all these reactive oxygen species being produced that causes a lot of damage in the cell. And so 
in order to prevent that from continuing, you start to uncouple. And so you stop producing those uh, reactive oxygen species. And as you said, if those things, if these adaptive mechanisms continue and don't work out, then you end up with something like mitophagy, which is just destruction of uh, mitochondria. mitochondria. Yeah. yeah or, or on a larger level, you'd see apoptosis. And this doesn't mean that these processes are harmful. For one, they're helpful for adaptation. And for and the second point is that they can be activated in different contexts. So the other context where you see increases in, in uncoupling are is when you have a lot of energy, but uh, and and that's and you basically when you have a ton of ATP, it's another signal to say, hey, we don't really need to be producing much more more energy. We're we're all right. So you have a lot of ATP, and that starts to back things up the electron transport chain, and you have this reactive oxygen species production again. This time, you have uncoupling to burn off the extra substrate as heat, like we talked about, but you don't need any more energy. You're already, you actually got from A to B, and you just had all this extra gas, so you figured, all right, at that point, I'll just rev the engine extra and get rid of this gas so my car's lighter or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> So you could show all the girls around that you have a nice car with a fast engine or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so at that point, that uncoupling is, is actually helpful, right? It's just getting rid of extra substrate and you already have the energy. But when you're trying to encourage uncoupling without the energy there, you're just causing essentially more problems at, you know, but you get to get rid of the get rid of the substrate. And so that's what you see as one of those immediate adaptive mechanisms in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and you see it in other conditions as well. These elevated rates of things like autophagy and uh, uncoupling these adaptive responses. And to circle back to that study, they then went on a little bit further in that quote, and they mentioned that the oxidative stress associated with elevated hydride production in the citric acid cycle may be sufficient to damage the electron transport chain during chronic steatosis, a condition functionally manifest by impaired ATP synthesis in people with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis uh, or diabetes. So they say this would result in a degenerative spiral whereby damaged electron transport chain in turn requires elevated tricarboxylic acid cycle activity to produce sufficient reducing equivalents for normal ATP and cellular homeostasis. And so I know that was a lot as well. Again, um, you know, these studies can be a little dense for someone who's not used to them, but they're basically the first part. They're just saying that the oxidative stress damages the electron transport chain and this causes impaired ATP synthesis. And they said that this then causes this degenerative spiral, causes this vicious cycle where you can't produce enough energy. So you end up running through basically the Krebs cycle at a really high rate to produce, to make up the difference. Yeah. To, to make up the difference, to try to restore some semblance of, of enough ATP. Yep. And that's like the first, again, it's all part of these adaptive mechanisms. And so, yeah, it's, in many ways more of the same of what we've been discussing but i think digging a little deeper as far as what is really the cause here uh as you know those previous studies were just looking at what is happening and then here they're talking about it's a lack of atp first and that's causing these other problems and that lack of atp is due to the damage of the electron transport chain and and the oxidative stress as opposed to the other hypotheses which are just saying you've got all these lipids floating around and that's um that's what's leading to to these issues well and i think this taylor will of, it can trail in nicely, but essentially when you don't have enough energy production at the cell, then you're going to start sending out, particularly at the liver, which is kind of regulating everything that's going on in the body, then you're going to start to see signals for the stress hormones to increase. And once right. you see that, then you're going to start to see the increase in fat, free fatty acids being released from the tissues or specifically fat, which is what you, what you see in these states. And then after that, you're going to see those free fatty acids being shuttled into the liver and then kind of clogging up the process with already, already, um, I guess, damaged cells to some extent, right? Cause it's like the cells don't have enough ATP. They're not mm -hmm. producing enough at the electron transport chain. The electron transport chain is then sending signals to the citric acid acid cycle, which is there. That's the same process, right? The citric acid cycle and the, and the electron transport chain are part of the same process. They're just two steps. So, mm -hmm. The electron transport chain takes the products from the, the citric acid cycle and turns them into energy. But if the eight, if there's not enough ATP being generated at the at the electron transport chain, then the citric acid then the electron transport chain is saying, "Hey, citric acid cycle, we need more product 
so that we can burn it into energy. We need more firewood because the fire, like when our fire isn't burning well enough to give us enough energy. So we just need more. So keep pushing more. The problem is, is as it's, as it's like not burning efficiently, um, that it starts to damage the electron transport chain to, to, to such an extent that it, then the electron transport chain is like, whoa. And then it starts, instead of burning the firewood to produce energy, then it's just kind of like, just like just letting the fire burn on the side over here and getting rid of some of the firewood with heat. But that also sends a signal that to the body and essentially where the body's going to be like, okay, we're going to give you more energetic resources. And so it's going to release free fatty acids from your fat tissue and it's going to divert them to the liver and then when, or into the bloodstream, then the liver will pick them up. When the liver picks it up and now it has a lot of fatty acids and then it also has this energetic dysfunction at the cell and it also has whatever's coming in with food. And it's kind of like, we have all this substrate that you're calling for, but our oxidative capability is impaired. So we can't run all of it through. We can't use all of this firewood. We don't know what to do with it. So then it starts, you know, packing the firewood up and, and, and sending it back to the fat. So putting it back in the shed and then it starts taking some other firewood and it starts make, turning it back into glucose. Or in this case, it's your, it's taking whatever's running through the pieces that it already cut. It's just packaging them back up. That's turning it back into glucose. And then it's burning some extra with the uncoupling proteins. But the problem with all of this is that you have this excessive, you have this damage uh, or, uh, or I guess inability to produce ATP correctly first at the cell and in a, particularly at the electron transport chain, at least based on this model here. And then uh, it like starts sending out signals and then you start getting this influx in to make up the difference. But since it's not working, it's like, oh, what do we do with all this stuff? But I bought too much firewood. I don't know what to do with it. Let's just put some here and put some here and put some here. And then eventually, as the fire continues to rage, it, it, and as it's like going through the, the electron transport chain, it damages the electron transport chain, and it starts producing reactive oxygen species. So basically, it starts building up large amounts of smoke. That smoke damages all the inside of the cell. Mm-hmm. And then this, the part, first, the mitochondria, with it damages the inside of the mitochondria and the electron transport chain, then even less energy can be produced. The mitochondria kind of just like explodes on itself with all this smoke. And then after that, the cell is just like, well, we're screwed too. And it, and it, that's, that's kind of the end. So it just, <laughs> the cell goes with it. So it's like this, the, the first step though, that, and I think this is what you're really trying to get at. The most important piece here is that, that deep, that destruction or that impairment of the energy to start. And so with fixing it, that's what we want to address directly as well getting the energy mm-hmm. to fix instead of trying to upregulate all these other backup pathways, like using high amounts of uncoupling so that we still never fix the energetic problem at the cell, but we burn through all of our substrate anyway. So like now we don't have the substrate build up, but we still don't have energy. It's like, you need to, you need to, you need to fix the energy of the cell. And then also in that same process, start, that'll help to adjust how the energy is moving through the cell and the rest of the body's coordinated response. But everything that's happening in the body, the increase of fat in the liver, the increased gluconeogenesis, the release of free fatty acids uh, from the fat tissue and to go to the liver, all of that is a backup process. Those are adaptive processes to help deal with what's going on at the cell. It's not just like, oh, this is a, this is a problem, that's a problem. Like The body's just trying to hurt itself. Yeah. And, and, and with those adaptive processes, we, another reason why we definitely don't want to be like encouraging them is because they're not enough. Like you see increases in uncoupling, for example, in this situation, but that's after there's already a lot of spillover into, uh, fat production at the liver and a lot of gluconeogenesis and, you know, from, uh, from the liver being under stress, like the uncoupling in these contexts is not, is still not enough to prevent that sort of spillover. And, and that's why you're still seeing it in these disease states. Um, it's like, you know, and again, it would probably be enough initially at first when it's just a little bit of extra substrate, but it just continues and continues because you're not actually fixing the underlying problem. Yes. Which is that energy failure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you had talked a little bit about the, about how in this, this situation we're seeing low ATP and that's causing this release of stress hormones. And that, that stre- those stress hormones drive free fatty acid release. 
and they also drive fat oxidation. And so that is another thing that you see in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I think it's also really important to highlight this because normally when you're looking at fat production, the assumption is that the opposite of producing a lot of fat, uh, for like in the liver, let's say to produce or to cause fatty liver, the assumption is that the opposite of that is burning a lot of fat. So if you're burning a lot of fat, then you can't be storing a lot of fat. And they say the same thing about like general body fat, not even just the liver, right? Where the idea is that if you want to be insulin resistant in the body fat so that you can be burning fat there. And if you're, as long as you're burning fat there and everywhere else, then you can't store it. But that's not what you find in these conditions. For one, we, and we've talked about this in terms of diabetes, you see elevated rates of fat oxidation, impaired glucose oxidation, and yet you see fat storage uh, as body fat. Increasing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and just in general, weight gain as well, you see that a lot. And you also see that in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So here's a study where they, where they point that out and they mention that there's a strong association between intrahepatic triglyceride content, which is fat in the liver, and hepatic oxidative and anaplerotic TCA cycle activity. And then they say that this demonstrates the induction of mitochondrial fat metabolism in response to lipid overload during non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, simultaneous induction of pathways of lipid accretion, oxidation, and gluconeogenesis heralds oxidative stress, loss of glycemic control, and potential damage to the liver during chronic hepatic steatosis. And so what I like that they're pointing out here is that you're, they say lipid accretion, which is the increase of, of fat storage, uh, lipid oxidation, and gluconeogenesis are all happening at the same time, and that this is a recipe that involves oxidative stress, loss of glycemic control, and damage to the liver. And that's exactly what you see. And so to be making the argument that you just want to be burning fat so that you're not storing fat, I mean, that's not what's seen in this condition. You're, you're seeing in many ways, the opposite. Uh, and people will also talk, you know, kind of another piece of the flip side here is that you don't want to be favoring carb oxidation. You don't want to be producing insulin because insulin is the other major thing that drives, uh, that's going to drive fat storage. But again, in these states, what you're really seeing, like even if you take insulin resistance and diabetes, where you might see a high level of insulin, what you're seeing that overrides the insulin is elevated levels of stress hormones, extremely high levels of glucagon, cortisol, Adrenaline. Yeah, cortisol, adrenaline, adrenocorticotropin hormone. With insulin. <laughs> right. And, and insulin. sugar and fatty acids. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of fat oxidation and a lot of lipolysis and a lot of fat storage. So you're seeing these overriding signals where the ones that tend to override are the stress-induced ones that are driven by energy. And again, this is why it's so important to come down to what's to come back to what's happening on that fundamental level is you're seeing a lack of energy. And the presence of insulin is not causing that. Uh, the stress hormones instead are a response to that and all of the fat oxidizing pathways and the fat uh, releasing pathways are responses to a lack of energy. You don't get those without a lack of energy. So when you are on a low carb diet, you are causing a lack of energy and that's what's shifting you into that fat metabolism. And that's what you're seeing in these, in these chronic health conditions. That is the more or less exact mechanism that you're seeing come about. And the question, the only potential difference is what's causing it. In one case, you have a lack of carbs causing it, whereas in the case of diabetes or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, lack of carbs could be part of it. Generally, you have other things that are more involved that are blocking that in energy production, things like endotoxin and PUFA and, and You have actually direct blocks on oxidizing right. glucose uh, uh, appropriately in the pathologic states. And whereas yeah. in the the ketogenic or low carb states, you have a physiologically induced state of insulin resistance because you don't have a high amount of carbohydrate coming in. So your body is essentially shifting gears and saying, look, I'm going to switch to the most of my tissues or a large part of my tissues are going to oxidize fats. And then I'm going to prioritize the carbohydrates that my liver is capable of producing for my nervous system. So you're at like a chronic state of subsistence. I, I forget who who call who called it that. It was like you're at a you're literally at chronic subsistence. So th there is a there's parallels between them, but they're also like one is an actual damage and failure at the cellular level, and the other one is you're just running at a suboptimal state to a large extent. Yeah, I mean it's the equivalent of trying to just focus on increasing uncoupling. Uh, you know, it's that same forcing of the adaptive process. Well, it's even, it's kind of misguided though, right? Because oh, yeah. the, the sense is like, and I don't mean that in like, I mean that from like the actual physiologic perspective where it's like, well, since insulin is high in all of these states, 
and drives growth and yada, yada, yada. Since it's associated with all these different states, therefore I want insulin to be low. So I'm going to then lower carbohydrates because carbohydrates increase insulin acutely. And it's like, those are, those are a series of associative arguments being made and without mm-hmm. even discussing the underlying mechanisms of what's going on. And, and just looking at like chronic carbohydrate consumption doesn't decrease insulin sensitivity over the long term. So like just that piece alone destroys the entire chain of arguments that are created for the low carb, higher fat state. Um, you see increased insulin sensitivity with increase carbohydrate intake as long as you don't have damage going on at the cellular level. And so what we're trying to put in, pull into focus here, and it, the reason we're discussing diabetes and everything else is because they're, they're, it's the same dysfunctional pattern happening at the cells, in, but it's, it's just in different, they're called different disease states. And in a lot of diabetics, you, you're, I suppose like, I think a study was showing like 80% or something had fatty liver disease like they all go hand in hand. You have similar dysfunction going on across the board. Um, and they can be for different reasons. Some diabetics can have high amounts of have endotoxin. Some diabetics can have energetic issues with their mitochondria for whatever reason. Some could have, and that could be from uh, like excess incorporation of polyunsaturated fatty acids, perhaps, or it can be from rank vitamin and mineral deficiencies, or it can be from um, heavy metal exposure or, or upregulations of stress hormones over an extended period of time, like cortisol and adrenaline and, and what have you, or like for be a chronic stress, whatever it is, there's, there's, um, and it's usually not just one factor. It's usually a multitude of factors, but the whole process comes down to, is you have an energetic failure in these pathologic states, not the, not the induced physiologic states, like, like ketosis and whatnot. They're still stress pathways, but you can, you can reverse those by switching off of your high, your low carb, high fat diet in the diabetic and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease states, you have like a direct impairment at the cell itself, at the mitochondria itself with the production of energy that you have to repair in order to reverse the dysfunction. And so you're seeing the upregulation of all these hormones simultaneously that would in a normal healthy person should not be seen together. You're not going to see high insulin, high cortisol, high glucagon, high blood sugar, and high free fatty acids simultaneously in a, in a normal, healthy individual. You're basically seeing a breakdown of, the, of those pathways and the body is like trying to compensate in every way it can. It has the glucose available. It can't use it appropriately. So you're getting an energetic signal that, look, we don't have enough energy at the cellular level. So we need to in, we're going to start putting out fatty acids and then it's going to raise the fatty acids. The fatty acids are going to continue, are, are going to start being oxidized over the glucose but you still have the energetic deficit and the cortisol is still elevated. So it's going to increase the liver's output of glucose with gluconeogenesis. And then you also, with the increased signaling for glucose for in the blood, you're going to have your insulin elevated as well, trying to move that glucose into the cell, but the cell is not responding to it. And so I think what you see with, with diabetics and, and, and different people with, the met, with metabolic dysfunction is the insulin is driving the glucose into fat tissues. And the cells, your muscles, whatever the different cells of your body are oxidizing primarily fatty acids and with the elevated cortisol. And so the glucose is coming, being shunted to fat, and then the fat is releasing fatty acids and the cells are, are oxidizing their fatty acids. And these are under the action of stress hormones. And so one thing that you notice with diabetics in general, and the diabetic state is very analogous to the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease state. But with mm-hmm. diabetics, when they start injecting higher amounts of insulin, they actually, one of the side effects is weight gain because just because you force the insulin into the body and then you have higher amounts of insulin doesn't mean that the insulin is going to be able to force all of that glucose inside all of your cells. So I would say a large percentage actually has to get rerouted to fat storage because the cell is unable to actually use the glucose. And then the other thing they'll use is different drugs like metformin, which is still relying on backup pathways where I'm just going to burn all my sugar through glycolysis. I'm not going to move it to the, to the electron transport chain and the Krebs cycle because they're not mm-hmm. working. So you're still, you're disposing of the sugar in the blood, but you're not correcting the underlying pathology. And that's why most people, even insulin dependent diabetics tend to get worse. And that's why like you can hop on insulin 
and you can control your blood sugar and your hemoglobin A1C and whatever, what else have you may come down and you may see decrease in oxidative stress in the blood and whatnot, but you don't actually fix the diabetic state. Plus most people progress and get worse even on insulin dependent diabetes, unless they actually make lifestyle changes. And the lifestyle changes are what affect what's going on at the cellular level. And that's diet, that's sleep, that's stress, that's exercise, that's uh, whatever else, all these other factors. Those are what really fix the cellular, the cellular energy deficit. I don't know if yeah. I went too long with that, but. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I mean, those are all, it's helpful to go through all those things and they're all connected. I did want to touch on the low carb ketogenic diet not being pathologic and and again you like it's important to recognize that what we're doing there is we're still driving those adaptive backup pathways and as you're saying and this is what you're pointing out it's not like those are those adaptive pathways are being forced by uh inhibited energy production for some you know due to endotoxin for example but they are being forced by a basically a suboptimal environment does that doesn't include carbs and that'll happen whether it doesn't include any food at all like starvation or if you're just avoiding carbs so you're still like the whole reason why those pathways are activated and why you see a stress response when that happens is because they are still leading to a depletion of energy and then a reliance on fat oxidation for energy now it's much easier to do that and function than it is to be in a state of severe you know, fatty liver or severe diabetes and function through the adaptive pathways. Because what you're seeing in, in diabetes and fatty livers is that you keep having to drive down these layers and layers and layers of, of adapt, adaptive pathways because they aren't responding well enough. Like the first layer of adaptation is not enough to get by. So you have to keep going deeper, deeper and deeper. That will happen on a low carb or ketogenic diet, but it will take longer for that to happen because this is a situation where you're there's there's not necessarily other things preventing that adaptive pathway from functioning. It's like that first line of defense is working out fine. Whereas when you have diabetes or insulin resistance, all these other issues, there are a lot of other things that happen to be driving that state. And along the another important piece here is when you're on that low carb diet, you tend to remove one of the biggest factors that does cause that pathologic state, which is the toxic components from the gut bacteria, whether it's endotoxin or others. So yeah, I just want to clarify that that doesn't, because, because when you say that that's not pathologic, you can then, it almost like, it's almost like you're giving credence to the argument that you should be on a low carb diet. And no, I just strong distinction between, for me, it's the strong distinction between the mechanisms because right. like, and, and that's purely from like a, it's purely from a mechanism stance. It's not from like a ideologic stance about the diet. It's about one is you literally have a dysfunction at cellular energy production. That is not like it's, it's not under your control. Like you can't just reverse it right away by switching back to eating carbs. Whereas the other is you're just not eating carbs. So like both states are a, a are a pathology, right? Like you're still inducing stress, but mm -hmm. it, to delineate them, it's easier to, I think, the divide one is like you literally have a severe dysfunction. And then the other one is like you don't have a severe dysfunction yet, but you're kind of on your way. <laughs> yeah. And the one thing I want to say about like the, the other thing with like ketogenic diets and all this type of stuff is when most people go on low carb keto, like when they when they switch their diet, they're going into like like to most it's usually like low carb paleo keto, like kind of go together. So you also mm -hmm. have like an entirely change in in like choices of food consumption besides yeah, lowering yeah. endotoxin. Like most people, like when they go low carb keto, it's like, there's no more grains. There's no more packaged foods. Although now everybody's doing all this, these BS keto foods, right? Like all the keto pops and yada, yada, yada. But right. when it comes down to it, it's like, you're also like removing a lot of problematic issues. And I don't know if I've ever seen anybody advocate for a high polyunsaturated fatty acid keto diet. I haven't, I, I haven't seen that. I think that that would be even worse situation, but most people will, will do like the fat sources that they'll use will be like olive oil and butter and coconut oil and chocolate and maybe avocados and avocado oil, which is like a very significant difference in running your traditional American standard American diet of high amounts right. of refined grain products and granulated sugar and vegetable oils with 
additives and and added iron would at creating rank nutrient deficiencies and high amounts of oxidative stress in the cell and incorporating high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids into the structure and, and damaging its function. Like that is an entirely different story than running on a lower carb diet with a high, lots of like cooked broccoli and spinach and blueberries occasionally and dark chocolate and organ meats and eggs. And like, those are entirely different dietary paradigms, carbs or not. And so like the changes right. I think are coming from quite a few different areas from in, in the, the low carb keto, keto paleo stuff where you're like excluding a lot of junk and adding in a lot of benefit, even though you don't have the carbs. Like I don't doubt that people, this is not saying that people don't get quality results in some of their situations with that stuff. And that's because I've gotten them myself and I know that, but at the same time, like I, there also is issues associated with it. So, and that's where we're, that's what we're getting into now. And that's what the upregulation of stress hormones with that. But the, as far as like the conflation between insulin and, and whatnot with carbs, and then that trying to compare that to, oh, if I eat carbs, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and diabetes and whatnot, like it's not the cause. Like there's some, there's the energy dis, dis, dysfunction inside the cells, the actual cause. And it, mm -hmm. it's, we're saying that it's not related to the carbohydrate intake, um, and then like the excess free fatty acids in these states is that are going to the liver is actually coming from the dysfunction itself. Because in the one study that we talked about, we talked about off, off air, but I guess we'll put it up at some point is like the fatty acids were actually coming from people's fat stores, the bulk majority and, and de novo lipogenesis. So increase of fat in the liver, it wasn't actually coming in from the diet, which is, which characterizes the dysfunction is actually going on at the cell and actually going on at the liver. And, and, and that's what we, that's what needs to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I did want to mention uh, that I have seen, you mentioned a, a high PUFA keto diet and I have seen keto vegan diets that are high PUFA. So, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, they do exist. <laughs> and that's probably, you know, on one hand I would say it's a lot worse, but in that case, when you, you know, PUFA are really good for shifting toward that hibernation, decreasing your metabolic needs. That might be better if you're not having carbs. It might uh, slow the the process of degeneration a little bit in some ways, um, but yeah, you know, one of those short term benefits, long term harm sort of deals. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but let's circle back to. I, I wanted to mention one other thing as far as seeing the upregulation of fat oxidation in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. There's another study that was just highlighting this, and I also wanted to mention. So we were talking before about that study with the different. Uh, hypotheses that they were sharing as far as why they thought uh, this was going on. And so this is one of the studies where they're talking about one of those earlier hypotheses that it's just the ex excess lipids that are the problem. So they say in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, both lipid oxidation and the citric acid cycle are enhanced, suggesting that hepatocytes try to counteract excess lipid by increasing oxidation. Uh, the higher production of reducing equivalents by lipid oxidation causes an overflow of electrons through the mitochondrial respiratory chain, resulting in higher free radical generation. This may lead in turn to mitochondrial dysfunction with consequent progression of liver pathology. And so just to touch on that real quick, I think, so I, I do kind of disagree with like two of these pieces here. So one, the, the important thing is that you're seeing increased lipid oxidation. That's what we're talking about, that, that you will see this despite the increased fat production, the increased fat accumulation. Yep. Uh, so, so that's important. But they mentioned, first off, the higher production of reducing equivalents by lipid oxidation is what causes the overflow of electrons. And it's I'm not exactly sure if they're just saying all reducing equivalents, but the important part there is the increased FADH2 compared to NADH. And that's yep. that difference that we talked about in terms of the Randall cycle. And in terms of their effects on the electron transport chain, where you have the competition uh, between complex one and complex two for this, they use the same electron acceptor, which is ubiquinone. And when that happens and you have both FADH2 and NADH, the excess FADH2 causes a buildup of NADH that can't drop off uh, enough electrons and it causes reactive oxygen species from complex one. And so that's the important part there, uh, it sounded like they were more just saying it's the rate as opposed to the difference in between fat and carb oxidation. So I wanted to highlight that. And again, they then say this then leads in turn to mitochondrial dysfunction with consequent progression of liver pathology. But again, what we're talking about is that it's the mitochondrial dysfunction first that leads to the excess lipids in the first place, which is what, which is then what causes that vicious cycle. Um, 
they do mention later on that the development and progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is characterized by hepatocellular redox imbalance, which may depend on, but also contribute to the impaired regulation of lipid metabolism. So they do mention, you know, later on that the redox imbalance, basically meaning the problems at the electron transport chain with energy production uh, can contribute to the impaired lipid situation, the impaired lipid metabolism. So they do acknowledge that as, as a factor, but that's obviously what we've been talking about is, is kind of the key factor. Yeah. And this is, I mean, if I, if I remember correctly, like this is like where they say the higher production reducing equivalence by lipid oxidation causes an overflow of electrons through the mitochondrial respiratory chain resulting in a high ROS. So mm -hmm. just for anyone who's like, we've, I think we've covered it a little bit, but the ROS are like these, these like free, uh, it, it, it's essentially, um, you have these compounds that are generated that are able to react with other components of the cell and basically destroy them by what is it they they're able to uh, oxidize them so they'll pull an electron away from them and when you pull the electron you basically destroy the structure of whatever that is and it starts a chain reaction so one thing pulls an electron and it pulls and it pulls and it pulls and it pulls and it's kind of like a big tug of war game uh that's the easiest way i think to describe it but what happens is basically what you described is you have too much fat, it causes more ROS because of that bottleneck that you just described. This is like, I think we talked about this directly when we talked to, in the SCD1, uh, the fire in a bottle convert, uh, podcast series where we did, where they were, the argument was literally to increase this process. And what we're seeing here is that this, and we talked, we actually talked about this too in that, in that uh, podcast series, but the, the higher amount of fat oxidation is creating ROS. And then that ROS is, is it can damage the cell directly. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see where they talk about it uh, changes the redox imbalance. So the redox is just right. talking about the oxidative damage to oxidation and reduction balance. Um, so like the, the fat oxidation is actually driving the problem, at, at least in this yeah. argument. And like, it could be, it could be that they're, I think they're calling, like arguing for it to be the direct cause. Right. And, and then, right. But so even if it's not a direct cause, if it's still, it still adds to the pathology. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just think that it's like, it's another argument against the whole SCD one, like fire in a bottle idea where you want to oxidize high amounts of saturated fatty acids to basically, um, to cause ROS generation and make the cell insulin resistant. And, and that's a mechanism that they literally talk about in there, but they just say it happens in fats. So yeah, so the, um, and of note with the, with that type of, with those types of arguments is people who go on that diet basically lose appetite <laughs> and it's not surprising why. Yeah. And the, uh, to clarify again, it's the oxidation of the fat is basically a part of that vicious cycle. It's a part of that situation where when things are going wrong, that further drives it, that further causes this cycle of dysfunction that, again, it's the primary cause is not that you just got all these lipid metabolites from eating too much fat. The problem is some sort of mitochondrial respiratory issue. Something's blocking it. Various things are blocking it. And then you have to resort to fat oxidation. And, uh, and that is just furthering along that whole process. Yeah. And that's part of the reason, too, why there's studies suggesting or showing that increasing NAD plus, but in that NAD to NADH ratio reverses this. It protects against non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the fat oxidation, which does the opposite of that. It increases the FADH2 to NADH ratio, which increases the NADH to NAD plus ratio, uh, does the opposite of, of that. Although, and again, this is, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make this whole thing about low carb, but it's just so relevant. And again, why it's so important to dig into these mechanisms is I've had people argue that fat oxidation will increase NAD plus. And it does do that by activating a backup pathway, an NAD salvage pathway that only happens when you've decreased NAD so much that you have to activate a stress pathway to bring it back up. Whereas if you're just oxidizing carbs very well, you'll naturally increase the NAD to NADH ratio without activating any stress or yeah, any of those stress adaptation pathways it defeats the purpose. Like you want those equivalents to then move through the electron transport chain to produce ATP. You don't want right. to just take them and create more. And it's, it's not about having NAD. It's not about directly having as much NAD as possible. Like 
yes, the ratio is important but to NAD to NADH, but the ratio is looking at what's actually going on in terms of energy production. It's a, it's a symptom or a signal or a symbol of you literally taking the NADH and oxidizing it through the electron transport gene and producing adequate amounts of ATP. And then you get NAD plus back after that, not just mm-hmm. have like, cause this is another thing I see currently is like, everybody's like NAD, NAD, it increases life. I need to take uh, nicotinamide riboside. I need to take nicotinamide mononucleotide, like all these different stuff. It's like, or you can just make sure that your elect, your mitochondria are fun- functioning well and you're oxidizing, you're oxidizing at your carbs and, and so you're always going to oxidize fat to some extent, but you're going to oxidize both of them appropriately without having dysfunction at the cell. Like then your NAD to NADH ratio will be just fine. You don't have to actually add the NAD directly in. You do need a certain mm-hmm. amount, right? Like that's why we take, that's why we have vitamin B3, which is nicotinamide or niacin. But mm-hmm. you, like once after you have the optimal amount for the cell, like just trying to increase it for the purpose of increasing it isn't like it defeats the purpose. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we talked through this earlier. We, we use that analogy of the assembly line and it, it's like, you, you know, we were talking about the people carrying the, the pieces of wood that then go to the end to become the chair and that those pieces of wood are, you know, or the people carrying them are like the NADH when they have the wood and when they don't have the wood, it's like the NAD. So it, as you're saying, it's what you're not doing by activating those stress pathways is helping to drop the wood off at the end and create more chairs. The, the these in this case, like these adaptive stress pathways, are just a way to like throw the wood somewhere else where it's not going to harm anything. You know, throw it out of the out of the factory or something, and then you've got these people who are then able to go and grab the earlier parts of the assembly line, so that part can keep moving. Uh, but yeah, you don't want to have to do that. You just want to fix the the last part that wasn't working in the in the first place. Yeah. You want to fix the part where the wood gets turned into the chair. You want the chairs. That's the whole point of the factory. So right. where you, if you're creating a situation where the people are dumping the wood so they can go get more, but no chairs are being created, it's kind of a useless process. Now, in yeah. cellular dysfunction, as far as a backup pathway to kind of get you through whatever's going on, it makes a lot of sense. It's great. The, right. and, 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 and we can get to, I guess we'll get into this now, but like in studies where they knock out the enzyme sterol CoA desaturase one, which basically takes saturated fats and um, turns them into monounsaturated fats and creates triglycerides, which are the storage form. When you get rid of that and you just have the buildup of the wood and you're not able to store the wood, you actually make the situation worse. So the fatty acids being stored in the liver are actually a protective mechanism against the energetic defect. The production of Uh, or the export of the fats back to fat tissue is a protective mechanism against the energetic defect in the cell. It's, it's, it's extremely necessary to have those going on when you have that energetic defect, the the uncoupling is protective. So it, the question is like, Oh, we don't want to do like the, we don't just want to like go to all these protective mechanisms, fix the problem. We want to actually fix the direct problem. So we don't have to worry about uncoupling and increased um, intrahepatic fat and whatnot. And, what, and essentially what you see with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the progression I described earlier with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease for quite, for a, quite a bit of people that have it, they never progress to actual like inflammation where you have uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So most, and, and the researchers found this out and they basically had to figure out like, what is the primary shift in the cell that moves to, to, to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis? Like why do some people go and some people don't? Some people just got fat in their liver and like call it a day. And that's kind of it, you know, like, and a lot of people can have fat in their liver and not have any like objective laboratory signs of it where they don't have high blood lipids and they don't have high, um, high insulin or diabetes and, and, and all these different pathologies. They just got fat in their liver and there's still, there's still a defect going on energetically, but it's not bad enough to create like a whole systemic it's systemic, but it's not like to the extent where you're diabetic or you're going into like severe inflammation. The, mm-hmm. the switch with that is where you start having like excessive amounts of reactive oxygen species being produced and high amounts of oxidative stress where you're just destroying the cell and the mitochondria and the energetic defect in the mito or deficit, not defect, but deficit gets so high that the mitochondria is just like, look, we're, we're done guys. Like we gave it our shot. <laughs> it's kind of it. <laughs> and then the cell is just like, well, if he's done, I'm done too. <laughs> so like the, the, all the, they just kind of like the factory is just like, all right, we're closing up shop. That's it. 
And then, it, right, right. yeah. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. In the next episode of this series, we'll be discussing the role of the stress hormones, including cortisol specifically and adrenaline, in fatty liver. And then we'll begin discussing the most common causes of energy failure in this condition. So make sure to tune in to that episode. If you did enjoy today's episode, then please leave a like or a comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you're dealing with any of the low energy symptoms that we've been discussing or low energy conditions that we've been discussing, whether that is fatty liver or insulin resistance or any of those related chronic health conditions, or any other low energy symptoms, maybe that's weight gain or fatigue or joint pain or brain fog, or poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or any gut or digestive symptoms, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy and I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.